Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 14th of December, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott. David bringing us northern exposure, of course, from north of the border in Bonnie, Scotland. Uh, well, we should get straight on because we've got lots to get through. And of course, uh, Michelle Barnier back to work this morning uh, with the UK uh, negotiating team. Brexit, of course. Uh, Brexit without the exit continues. Uh, so negotiators are uh, they're going to push a new push uh, to reach agreement on post-Brexit trade. Uh, that's what the BBC said. Is it really about trade? We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, but let's uh, first of all just uh, remind ourselves of what Ursula von der Leyen had to say about this uh, over the weekend. Good afternoon. I had a constructive and useful phone call with Prime Minister Boris Johnson. We discussed the major unsolved topics. Our negotiation teams have been working day and night over the recent days, and despite the exhaustion after almost one year of negotiations, and despite the fact that deadlines have been missed over and over, we both think that it is responsible at this point in time to go the extra mile. We have accordingly mandated our negotiators to continue the talks and to see whether an agreement can be reached, even at this late stage. The negotiations continue here in Brussels. Thank you so much. Right, I let that run on because I just had to let everybody see her putting her mask on. It was really an important point so, there. COVID was not a problem during the speech, but immediately afterwards he crept into the room. Uh, yes, apparently, yes. Uh, but uh, David Bryan's just uh, whispered in my ear. Uh, of course, she wasn't being very EU because it should have been go the extra kilometre. Well, you see here, here you see why they need us in the European community, because we bring, we bring with us the, the strongest cliches in the world. Uh, we do indeed. Now, and, that, I, sorry, go ahead. Well, and and you, you need cliches to detract from the vagueness, major unsolved topics. What would they be? Um, well, we'll well have a consider that in a second. Now, uh, that was, by the way, she didn't make those words up. That was a joint uh, statement by her and Boris Johnson. Both sides put out exactly the same words. Um, but yesterday on the Andrew Marr programme on BBC, uh, the Irish Prime Minister, uh, Micheál Martin, was, uh, was on. Um, and, well, maybe he gives us a clue as to what these extra topics are uh, that uh, require the extra mile. Um, so let's just have uh, a first listen to him. In my view, it's extremely important that the future relationship uh, between the United Kingdom and Europe is a solid one, not just in terms of tariff-free and quota-free trade, but also in terms of politics, judicial cooperation, security cooperation, aviation, transport, energy. It's important that we have a good yeah. uh, future relationship deal uh, between Europe and the United Kingdom, given, given the geopolitical challenges we are facing, but also because we represent people, workers, employers, who need the certainty and the clarity of such a deal. 
Okay, so uh, does that uh, does that make you feel better, David? Because for the first time, uh, unchallenged, by the way, by Andrew Marr, we've had a European leader spelling out uh, exactly what it is that, uh, that the UK column has been spelling out. We've been highlighting the fact that this deal is much broader than just an economic playing field, uh, an economic uh, uh, trade agreement with a level playing field. It's also the security partnership, it's judicial, it's policing, it's intelligence sharing. Uh, it's a whole range of topics aside from that, which the British government does not want to uh, discuss, at least publicly in the, uh, in, the, in the mainstream press, I mean. Oh, that's for sure. Yes, that, that, sounded, like, uh, that sounded like staying in. Um, aviation, security, which would obviously police, military, intelligence and everything else. Uh, politics. I, I thought we left a political union. Aren't we not? Uh, no, well, indeed, that is that is the key point, and we'll say it again because this really is the key point: Brexit without the exit. Because, of course, we uh, left the treaties on the thirty first of December twenty twenty uh, twenty nineteen. Sorry, and we're supposed to be uh, leaving the transition period on the thirty first of December twenty twenty. Uh, but we leave that transition period potentially with a future relationship, which. If we remember what Theresa May and Boris Johnson at times have said, we'll have greater breadth and depth than we have ever seen before. So they took us out. And they're bringing us back in. Um, but Michal Martin had a little bit more uh, to say on this. Just have a listen to this. Well, I think the, 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 the level playing field area is one that has bedeviled the talks from the outset. In my view, with some degree of creativity, uh, a resolution can be found in that area. Uh, and I think if, if you know the, the United Kingdom exports heavily into the European Union market, indeed into Ireland um, as well. And uh, Ireland would be the fifth largest market for the destination mm. of British goods and services, which is probably not widely known at about 38 billion. China comes next at about 30 billion. That illustrates the interdependence between yeah. our two economies. Uh, and so, in my view. Britain has a lot to gain through access, obviously, to the, mar the European market. And I think a resolution mechanism or a, a mechanism to uh, re resolve any future disputes is one that both sides, uh, with a bit of creativity, could sign up to. Uh, and I think, you know, 97% of, of this deal sure. has been negotiated across to the judicial, security, uh, research, a whole range of areas. Uh, and it seems to me that, that the remaining 3% should not be beyond the capacity of both sides to bridge. So now what he was talking about there in the middle of that was dispute resolution. On Friday's programme, David, um, I suggested that uh, part of what's going on here, uh, because in that, also in that interview, Michal Martin was talking about the Biden, the new Biden presidency, about the fact that, that Biden is much more likely to pursue a multilateral view of the world. Uh, and that we that the EU wants to bring uh, the United States into this uh, whole scenario as well. Um, and so on Friday, I have, was pointing out that that you know Britain's uh, trade policy really was up to a point, totally engaged with the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Now, one of the reasons why that failed as a as a a, a deal at the end of the day was because there was so much opposition to the resolution, the dispute resolution mechanism. And here we have Michal Martin really expressing an EU view that uh, dispute resolution is a very key part. It's, it's one of, clearly one of the sticking points. Um, and of course, as from Boris Johnson's point of view, he has to try to sell a dispute resolution mechanism which doesn't involve uh, the European Court of Justice, which at, at, at the moment any dispute resolution would. Um, but nonetheless, 
it's there there's much much more to what's going on here than just trade uh, and he reiterated it once again there it's security defense intelligence policing judicial uh, and this just isn't being discussed and he wasn't challenged about on that as i say by andrew marr at all he wasn't and and he seemed to be working on the basis that both judicial and security matters were resolved they were all agreed they were part of the 97 percent so if the defense of the realm is agreed and the courts and how they interact with the with with europe and the courts are very much the heart of our country in many ways and that's agreed uh, do you think it might be possible if somebody would tell the british people uh, you would think that would be uh a requirement but uh, apparently you, not I think it'd be a requirement but of course it's not a good idea because if the British people knew what was actually being done uh, without their knowledge they would be extremely angry and I think we'd be well on our way to stopping it so deceit of course is the is the biggest weapon of, of um, Boris Johnson's government at the moment mm. well let's just hop across to the Atlantic and uh, um, I think it was Friday I was hearing in a personal capacity because we've got some uh, family living in California that California was going into lockdown this prompted some interesting transatlantic conversation in a family sense um, but thank you very much to the viewer who pointed out this clip with uh, Jake Tapper I think the gentleman's name is interviewing Bill Gates on CNN uh, this is from about a day ago um, so let's um, follow this little question and answer session through because it's fascinating. So Tapper started out with saying that people in California are right now under brand new stay at home orders. Uh, there's hospitals, there's a risk of being overwhelmed. There are lots of governors who oppose these lockdown orders and forcing businesses to close. What do you think? Do you think more states need to be taking that kind of drastic action we saw uh, when the pandemic first began or can there be a more nuanced approach well in came uh, Bill Gates and we've labeled him on screen here as an unqualified medical expert which of course he is uh, he said straight off that well certainly mask wearing um, has essentially no downside and they're not expensive I wonder, David, whether we can just comment on that. It's fascinating that this completely unqualified man, his only qualification is he's immensely wealthy, simply states there are no risks, there are no downsides whatsoever to masks. And the benefit is, of course, they're cheap. This, this comes to the question, is Bill Gates actually just stupid? Is he just dim uh, or is he lying on purpose? Because we, we know that the oxygen levels that people breathe in go down when they wear a mask. Down below levels which, it, what, if it were in a tunnel in, on a construction site, would um, sound alarms and have immediate evacuation. That's a bit of an issue, surely. We know that uh, bacteria uh, growths are, are uh, discoverable on masks many of them, after less than one day of use. So that's been held right next to your airway the whole time. We don't know what the long-term consequences of mask wearing is. Uh, there have been some deaths in China. Two boys uh, died in PE lessons whilst wearing masks. Um, there have been 
um, other rumours which don't we, we haven't really quite got to the bottom of. Um, but there sits Bill Gates pronouncing that there is no downside. Yeah. Um, I think Bill Gates is uh, lying to us, but it is possible that he's just dim. He's just, um, yeah, Tim Dim and not very nice. Uh, well, he went on to say this, that uh, bars and restaurants in most of the country will close as we go into this wave. And I think, sadly, that is appropriate. Depending on how severe it is, the decision on schools is much more complicated as the benefits are kind of high. The amount of transmission is not the same as in restaurants and bars. Be interesting to see some scientific proof on all that. Uh, Mike, but of course there is none. He doesn't need any. Maybe it's because there's no laughing in US schools, perhaps. Uh, well, we come on to laughing in a minute, actually. So trade-offs will have to be made, but this next four to six months really call on us to do our best because we can see that this will end and you don't want somebody you love to be the last to die of coronavirus. I thought that was a classic line that some publicist had given him in order to uh, try and interfere with our emotions. Uh, but the um, CNN guy came back. He said, when do you think life will fully return to what we thought of was normal back in January? No masks, no social distancing, no other protective measures necessary. And at this point, um, Bill Gates took a huge swig of tea and I find this very significant. I'll come on to something else. Certainly by the summer, um, we'll be way closer to normal. He laughs. It, it's a bit difficult to hear what he says initially there, but it's something close to that. Uh, so we'll be uh, way closer to normal than we are now. But even through early 2022, unless we help other countries get rid of this disease. So this was all said with him needing to take a, a swig of tea. And I'm going to say, because I think he knew that he was not telling the truth at this point, he then went on to start rubbing his face. And we get high vaccination rates in our country. The risk of reintroduction will be there. And of course, the global economy will be slowed down, which uh, hurts America economically in a pretty dramatic way. So we will have uh, we will have starting in the summer about nine months where a few things like big public gatherings will still be restricted. Uh, we can see now somewhere in 12 to 18 months, we have a chance if we manage it well to get back to normal. And he was interfering with his face the whole time, which I believe is a big no-no in this COVID environment. Um, we're not qualified to comment in a uh, applied psychology, but to me, he was deeply uncomfortable with what he was saying. And uh, I'll just point out that uh, this particular newsreader uh, put out quite a good uh, hit piece on Trump recently. Um, this headline caught my eye because he'd got, thank you, President Trump, for exposing those who supported your assault on democracy. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that maybe um, Mr. Uh, Tapper Trapper was not the man who was going to get the truth out about COVID. Uh, well, we'll have more on Donald Trump a little bit later. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, Brian, I thought it'd be worthwhile uh, looking Back. For those of, those of you that were watching the UK column news back from the beginning of this whole COVID uh, situation, one of the uh, statistical agencies that we were very uh, keen to pre uh, present information from was Euromomo, which is presenting information right across uh, the EU, and it's all uh, extremely legitimate data. Um, and so I thought we'd have bring ourselves back onto that site and have a look at the situation we're in at the moment. Uh, this is uh, Europe-wide at the moment. 
this is the situation for all cause all cause mortality. Now it has to be said this is really only the, the only counter uh, that that can't really be fiddled unless you just remove people from the register altogether uh, or add people that don't exist. But uh, you know you can't sort of attribute a particular death to a particular thing. It's either somebody's dead or they're not. So this is the the least fiddleable figure uh, to go on. And what I just want to highlight there, if we look on the right hand side of that graph, is that we're not even close to the peak. Uh, of April um, and in fact very similar to peaks from previous years um, so the drive for vaccination is why that's uh, really the question uh, let's look at the gra at the, uh, the the map uh, and we can see uh, excess mortality across Europe uh, a little bit higher in Italy but France the UK all pretty normal uh, and if we look at the figures for England and Scotland there again massively well below the peak from the beginning of the year in both countries uh, and if we look at uh, Wales well Wales is claiming that its uh, uh, deaths are going through the roof at the moment and that uh, they need perhaps to cancel Christmas um, I'm not really seeing any evidence of that in those figures so I'd like to know where the Welsh government is uh, getting the justification for it Northern Ireland absolutely nothing unusual going on there at all um, so uh, David that looks pretty clear to me and maybe you could uh, give me some insight into why we are needing to have a mass vaccination rollout well it's unrelated to any threat that's the first point uh, secondly um, it seems to be um, more of a narrative than a reality if if we turned off the TV if no one was telling you to be afraid, if no one was saying there's a terrible pandemic and we all must wear masks and hide and avoid our neighbours, would anybody know? I don't think they would. Um, there's no sign of it. There's no um, crowded hospitals. There's no abnormal deaths. What exactly is this about? It's not about public health. It can't be. Doesn't make any sense for, for sure but uh, let's uh, let's look at the Guardian here because they've got this uh, headline I'm sure others have uh, uh, written this up as well dozens of GP practices in England opt out of COVID vaccine rollout uh, so this is a bit devastating for the for the government perhaps they're saying that uh, as a, basically the GP surgeries in some parts of the world particularly in the Northwest um, are refusing to get involved in the vaccine rollout on the basis that uh, they're being asked to commit to 12 hours a day, seven days a week of vaccinations um, and they don't have the staff for them. And what they're saying is uh, that if they were to get involved in this, um, that that would have an impact on the normal day to day services that they're supposed to be providing. Um, and David, I find this fascinating because, of course, uh, the hospitals didn't take the same attitude. The hospitals decided that in the first half of the year, uh, that they were going to basically suspend the normal day-to-day -day operations, the normal day-to-day -day services that they're supposed to provide uh, in favour of a complete reorientation towards COVID-19. And uh, if you happen to have a stroke, tough luck. Uh, some, some GP surgeries seem to be refusing that particular uh, path uh, with perhaps an understanding of the implications for their patients. Yes, GP surgeries are... Um, actually sort of privately owned by the doctors that run them, uh, contracted to the NHS. And uh, they obviously have a personal, the people who actually manage 
and own these, these organisations have a personal relationship with the parents, unlike the NHS where the senior management is, uh, shall we say, aloof, is, is, is remote uh, from, the, from the patients. Uh, the, the, the doctors are possibly not. Um, so they're, they're taking a different view. And I'd also point out that many of the, many of the nurses and medical staff in the hospitals are taking a different view. Uh, an overheard conversation in the supermarket in the last week uh, made reference to um, huge numbers of, um, quote, conspiracy theory nurses who are refusing to take the vaccine. Apparently, Perth Royal Infirmary is full of them. Uh, yes, I think that is a, a problem, Sharon, inverted commas, uh, that is being seen right across the NHS. But uh, let's uh, then come on to the BBC. Uh, and here we go. Uh, they're particularly concerned, it seems, about how the vaccine was getting approved. So they produced another uh, piece of, uh, uh, well, what do we call it, propaganda. Um, I just wanted to highlight this particular uh, sentence from this uh, website. It was also repeated in the video clip itself. Some people have been surprised to learn how a process which usually takes at least 10 years could have been done in less than one. Now, I find that a particularly disingenuous statement uh, because, of course, it wasn't done in less than one year. It was done in significantly less than one year. It was done in several months, a few months. Um, and uh, the implication from it being done in less than one, maybe a little bit less than one, uh, the, the, the idea of one year is still in people's minds. It was significantly less than one year, about six months at, at best. Um, and uh, there is no evidence, as far as I can see, that uh, uh, there yeah. backs up the idea that this any of these vaccines are safe. But look, I just wanted to make a quick correction to what I presented on Friday. Uh, this was uh, the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meeting from the Fed uh, Food and Drug Administration, uh, which said that in a mid-November analysis of uh, 36,621 participants randomised one-to-one, uh, to vaccine or placebo efficacy was 95%. Uh, and I was uh, really making the point that that 95% figure was coming from the idea of relative risk. Now, come on to that in one second. The, it was uh, just as a side point here, I just want to make the point that that number 36,621 uh, is different to the equivalent number, which I can't remember off the top of my head from the UK version of this document, which we also showed in last week's programme. Uh, the UK version of the, pro of the document also mentioned eight uh, COVID cases with the vaccine and 162 COVID cases in the placebo group. Uh, so why there is a, a difference in the total number of people that are uh, being included in the analysis, I'm not entirely clear. But anyway, 95%. If you remember, we showed the relative risk calculation uh, last week. Uh, and this line here, this third line is where I've made the mistake. And thank you to the uh, people that were sharp enough to pick this up because I put a typo in the, when I did that division, um, I put an extra zero. I, I last week had 0.0049. The correct answer is 0.049. Didn't make a, a change to the ultimate answer on the bottom line. It was just a typographical error in the slide. Um, and the key point here is relative risk, of course, doesn't show anything. We're giving that a big uh, nonsense mark. Uh, it's absolute risk that is the key point here. And when you work out that calculation, you discover that the absolute risk reduction as a result of taking the vaccine is a mere 0.8%. Uh, and of course, that <laughs> doesn't take into account many, many variables, which might make it uh, tend towards 
Zero percent. But we're not seeing the BBC produce that figure. No, like, or, no. Or the government or other reliable people who are promoting the, the vaccine. That, that is, that's absolutely correct. So anyway, I just wanted to, to make that clear uh, for the uh, people that uh, highlighted the fact that I put an extra zero in there. I do apologise for that, uh, but it didn't uh, make any difference to the point. Now, yeah. uh, let's uh, move on. And uh, David, uh, Mark Sedwell, who, of course, has... Uh, uh, recently retired as being king of uh, the UK in de facto at least in the sense that he was head of the British Civil Service, head of the National Security, uh, he was National Security Advisor and also uh, head of the Cabinet Office. Uh, well he has got a new job um, and what a job he has. Well he's done, he's done quite nicely for himself, he's got a job with uh, the Rothschild and Coal Bank um, they, they, they want to have him very much. Um, this is his first major private sector role. Obviously, it won't be his last. Um, he's going to be a senior advisor to the global firm. Lord Sedwell will aim to help Rothschild, quote, achieve their strategic global ambitions, as well as helping to connect to and advise clients across the global advisory, wealth and asset management and merchant banking businesses. So there we go. Um, so he's going to help Rothschild achieve their ends. Um, but at least this time, he's uh, actually on the job description. Uh, yes. Yeah, it would be nice to know what Rothschild's global ambitions actually are. That could focus our uh, thought process considerably. Well, domination, I would have thought. World domination by the banks is, yes, probably the best guess that we'll put forward today. Yeah. Um, he, okay. he has got certain res restrictions placed on him as to what he can do. Uh, for up to two years after leaving government, he's not allowed to reveal certain facts to to his new employer um, that he learned as uh, as a member of the uh, civil service. Um, and of course, we would trust him to keep his mouth shut, wouldn't we? But I think that well, rule sure. is actually that he can mention them, but they mustn't become public. <laughs> you have to think about that. Yes. Okay, well, look, uh, let's uh, come back to vaccination for uh, a little second. Uh, this is The Sun, anti-vaxxer dead, Brandy Vaughan dead, anti-vaxxer activist who founded uh, Learn the Risk is found dead by Sun uh, 9. What's going on, David? Well, this is very interesting, right? So this is a, a Brandy Vaughan worked for Merck. She, she sold uh, drugs for Merck and she found out that what she was selling uh, was was actually harming people. It was increasing uh, stroke and heart attack risk uh, twofold, and um, the company knew and wasn't being honest with the people who were receiving the product. So she whistle blew on this. Um, she subsequently went back to the United States uh, and found herself in conflict with uh, her medical advisors whenever she asked questions about vaccinations, and she found the response very hostile. So this prompted her, uh, her lack of trust in the drug company, which she's seen from the inside, prompted her to set up uh, an organisation um, to, um, to, to explain what the, the risks were in vaccination. Now, she was under a lot of pressure. She was under a lot of uh, harassment. Uh, she was making videos about some of the harassment, break-ins, strange things happening around home, um, things which appear to be done to intimidate her. Um, and uh, then she was found dead by her son, the, ironically enough, the day before the COVID vaccine was launched uh, by a strange coincidence. Um, 
she said, uh, from the experience that's with the, the, with the drug industry, uh, I realised that just because uh, it's on the market doesn't mean it's safe. Uh, much of what we are told by the healthcare industry simply isn't the truth. Um, upon returning to the States with a vaccine-free son, she was bullied at the paediatrician's office and asked questions at every parent, uh, when she asked questions at every parent she'd like to ask. What are the ingredients in these vaccines? How come children in other countries are healthier but receive fewer vaccines? Now, um, because of the harassment she was receiving, um, just under a year ago, she posted um, a warning in case she turned up un, uh, mysteriously dead. Um, she, it was headed, the post I wish I didn't have to write. But given certain sudden tragedies over the last couple of years, I feel it's absolutely necessary to post these 10 facts. Uh, amongst those facts, are, I have never had thoughts of taking my own life, not once, even before I had my son. I have a huge mission in life, even when uh, they make it very difficult and scary, I would never take my own life, period. So she goes on and explains that her health is good, and if, if there is any, um, if, she, if, if there's an unexplained uh, death, and she's, she's no longer alive, uh, she wants it investigated, and she asks that a crowdfunder be set up to help that investigation and to um, highlight what has happened to her. Um, and uh, ask people to, to dig deeply uh, in, into her demise. And now she's dead. Uh, she was a young woman. She was uh, in, in fine health um, without any underlying medical problems. And um, she had everything to live for. And it is very strange under those circumstances that her son should find her dead. And very strange that it should be the day before the launch of the COVID vaccine. And I think it's, uh, it's uh, to the credit of the Sun that they, they reported on this. And it's an, an, an issue and an area and a story that we should all watch and um, highlight if uh, any information comes to, uh, comes to the fore. Yeah, I think we must agree with that. And of course, um, on the internet is a great deal of information about the deaths of doctors, particularly those in a deep level of bio research who've been found dead, particularly in America. Um, so a lot more needs to be uh, discovered about uh, her particular death. Um, OK, let's move on to uh, this Metro article. This is a uh, firm link to Matt Hancock's family given five and a half million pounds mobile mobile testing contract. Um, so what the uh, what they're saying here is uh, a firm be believed to have links to Ma uh, Matt Hancock's family have been awarded five point five million pound contract. The deal was struck with EMS Healthcare, whose chairman Ian Johnson is said to be a former business partner of Hancock's uh, mum and stepdad, Shirley and Robert Carter. Um, and this is according to a, an article in the Byline Times. Uh, and uh, they say the details of the deal published yesterday show the company uh, was awarded the contract uh, to supply testing units to the Department of Health and Social Care. The contract began on the 15th of September and it will run until the 14th of September 2021. There is no evidence to suggest Hancock or his family were involved in the arrangement of the contract. That, but this raises questions and uh, interesting uh, little link in that particular article because it links to this uh, post here, uh, My Little Crony. It's on a website that sort of creates one of these uh, uh, maps of connections between various people. Uh, and if you select Matt Hancock, well, there's a couple of other connections come up which raise questions as well. 
Uh, and uh, one of those is the connections to this organization here, uh, Tolchan Group. Now, Tolchan Group is a PR organization. And for the first six months of this uh, coronavirus so-called pandemic, Tolchan was running daily briefings, in fact, twice daily briefings um, for the mainstream press. And what they did was build, help the mainstream press build their narrative to justify the lockdown, to justify this, uh, uh, the future uh, vaccine agenda and the testing agenda. Um, so what that, uh, that little uh, diagram shows, if you click on the Tolchan link, is that on the 1st of April, Matt Hancock was holding a meeting with the Office for Life Sciences, uh, also with Oxford Nanopore and both, uh, well, Oxford Nanopore is well up there in, within the list of companies that's gonna be providing uh, rapid testing. Uh, to discuss the government's testing ambition and they're showing that Tolchan Group was involved in that meeting uh, and so we should point out the Tolchan Group is uh, one of their managing partners is former Conservative Party Chairman uh, Lord Andrew Feldman uh, and he was recently asked by the Department of Health and Social Care to assist with its coronavirus response. So it seems that, uh, Brian, that no matter where you look, you find these connections to the companies, whether it be through shares, uh, through uh, secret meetings that nobody really was told about at the time, uh, linking PR companies to make sure that a particular narrative is pushed out through the mainstream press, uh, and also companies that are providing testing services. Uh, it all gets, I mean, the, the, the little crony doesn't seem to go far enough. Well, it's as, a, it's with, a criminal network. Uh, Mike, this this is not just cronies. This is this is deals being done with public money. This is a criminal network. And of course, many years ago, we were warning that the political charity Common Purpose was in having uh, meetings at, at cabinet office uh, level. Francis Maud was one of the people who was present. And then Common Purpose was going to get a contract. And what what happens? They massaged the minutes of the meeting so it wasn't clear to the public what was going on mm. until we challenged them and then those minutes were changed back to what they should have been in the first place so David I don't think there's any doubt you've described it as a government of occupation it isn't just a government of occupation in a political sense this is this is a criminal cabal which has taken over our government system from the inside you know what a Tolchan is Tell us. Tolchan Group. Tolchan um, was in Scotland a man appointed as a bishop after the Reformation, who was a bishop in name only, and whose revenue was actually drawn by his patron. That's it's just a, a, just a coincidence. Man. That's just a coincidence. It's just the same as, as um, having the link between Satanism and a certain gentleman's hedge fund. It's, it's a pure coincidence. <laughs> Well, let's remind our audience about the network of the government fear propaganda around uh, COVID-19. I think this is important to do because if you want, really want to understand how this is working, we can look at a few um, key components. So the government, well, we're going to call it the government of occupation, uh, but the power base is through and around the cabinet office. And remember, we've already reported that we're now dealing with perhaps 17,000 people as part of that cabinet office empire. Uh, but they've built up the SAGE scientific support team. And that's the uh, body 
claims to be independent, but of course it isn't, which is pumping out the uh, initial level of fear propaganda to the public over uh, COVID. Uh, but behind the scenes, we've got the Behavioural Insights team. Now, this was born out of the birthed out of the UK government originally, although it's operating as some form of social community enterprise now. But this was the team which was working on how to use applied political psychology to get people to do things. And in their Mindspace document back in 2010, they boasted that they could change the way people thought and behaved and people wouldn't even know this had been done to them. So immensely dangerous people, and I'm going to have to use that word. Um, they're celebrating 10 years from 2010 there. So you can find that if you go on their website, they've got a little 10-year bubbly, haven't we done well sticker. Uh, but of course, what are they doing? They're pumping their expertise in twisting the public's mind. This is brainwashing. That's being done through the Spy B Group, which is sitting alongside SAGE. And between all of them, they're pushing out the fear, they're skewing the uh, Office, of the National, of, of, Office of National Statistics figures, which in their own right are pretty um, reliable, but those figures are being skewed and misused, and the agenda is to ramp up fear and of course the BBC is, is the lead at pumping that out. So these are the key pieces people need to be aware about. And we're gonna to say to our audience, research the people. We'll give you a bit of help here because if you go to the Behavioural Insights team, this is their global board. So I don't know whether they're aligned to your Rothschild Bank story there, David, because they're thinking in global terms, they need a global board. We've got Rob Taylor, chair, uh, he's a former banker, but he's also been involved with creative arts industries. We've got one of the key players, Dr. David Halpin. People should really get into the research on this man. But if you look at his background, not a lot of psychology, but a lot of researching. He was a researcher and a chief analyst for the PM Strategy Unit. Uh, we've got a mysterious lady, Janet Baker, from the Cabinet Office. I could not find anything on her. So she's really up to something very interesting, um, but we can't see it. So if the audience can give us some help. Uh, we've got uh, Ian West, Director of Finance. Well, he's got a sort of charity media accountant background. Uh, we've got Nathan Elstub, Nesta. If you don't know what Nesta is, please go and research it. But strangely enough, that links back to a gentleman called Jeff Mulgan, who's the chief executive of Nesta. And it was Jeff Morgan he, who was in post uh, working alongside the Cameron government and Julia Middleton from Co Common Purpose when Common Purpose was being used to get inside the civil service. Uh, we've got Elizabeth Costa, uh, market expert, formerly of the Australian Treasury. So presumably this is the global flavour. And we've got Nikki Kerr, who's a psychological expert, solicitor, uh, but done work with the Treasury and the Cabinet Office. And if we take it on a bit further, the Behavioural Insights team has got a US board. There's April Chow. Uh, she's interesting because she's an education expert. Here's the focus on the children again. And uh, she's done some work as Vice President of the Chan Zuckerberg Community Charity. Any guesses which Zuckerberg that is, Mike? That'd be Mrs Zuckerberg. Uh, that'll be Mr Facebook. 
Yeah, but that's Mrs. Facebook. Oh, Mrs. Facebook. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. but that's his wife. Oh, that's his wife. Yes. So we, we've done a bit, of work, a bit of research while the news is live. We've got this gentleman, Cass Sunstein, US behavioral guru, chair of the World Health, uh, World, World Health Organization, technical advisory group, behavioral insights and sciences for health, I'm sorry, for sciences. And he's also health advisor to the UN, EU and World Bank. And it's not surprising, therefore, that we're seeing these World Health Organization behavioral documents also pushing for vaccine. Uh, but we've got more politics here with this gentleman, Cory Arnes Griffin, um, President Global Government and Industry Partners. I don't get a warm feeling about that. I should imagine the Rothschild Bank's in there somewhere. Um, but he was appointed also as an assistant director of the U.S. Office of Strategic Partnerships. And that, that was an Obama appointee. And um, we've also got other people here. We can bring them up on screen. These are what are known as academic affiliates. And I think we're going to have to let the audience get into these people and see who they are. But of course, none of them, you would say, are ordinary individuals who've got the uh, health and welfare of the UK in their minds. They all seem to be fully of a globalist agenda. And I'll just uh, end with this little bit here that thank you very much for somebody pointing out this House of Commons briefing uh, document from the 9th of December, UK vaccination policy. Um, in the end, or at the end of it, it's talking about mandatory vaccination. But although it's saying we're, we're not going to go to mandatory vaccination, but it quotes the Nuffield Council on Bioethics here. And it says this, in general, public health policy should le use the least intrusive means to achieve the required public health benefit. Um, directive, sorry, directive vaccination approaches that go further than simply providing information and encouragement to take up the vaccine may, however, be justified on the basis of minimising risks of harm to others or protecting the health of children and other vulnerable people. A case-by-case -case assessment will always be required. So directive vaccination approaches, it's fascinating language, but it then goes on and it says uh, in this document, it added that quasi-mandatory approaches can be ethically justified for highly contagious and serious disease and if eradication is within reach. Um, David, you're pretty good on, on what things mean. Quasi-mandatory, I just find a beautiful term. Does that mean we're not going to say it's mandatory? <laughs> we're just going to bully you into doing it. We're going to blackmail you into doing it. Is that quasi-mandatory? I'm not sure because saying that it's not mandatory and bullying you into is called standard operating procedure. That, that happens everywhere all the time uh, when we're not tricking you into it. If it's actually been called quasi-mandatory, um, I think that probably means it's mandatory, but it's illegal, but we're doing it anyway. It's illegal, but we're doing it anyway. Well, I think you're probably right on that uh, little bit of analysis. Which just reminds people that there's a really excellent article on the UK column website, Behavioural Insights, the second team leading the UK government's COVID-19 response. Um, that was uh, by uh, Martin Edwards, uh, was put up, posted on the 3rd of May 2020, and encouraged people to get into that 
and actually have a look at the detail about this applied political psychology to influence the way we think. Uh, and share it, please. Please share it as widely as possible. Now, David, uh, Scotland then, uh, anti-lockdown protests, more arrests. More arrests. Uh, four men arrested over anti-lockdown protest. Uh, this is in Edinburgh. A group of 70 marchers moved from outside the Scottish Parliament to the First Minister's official residence in Butte House on Saturday. Um, Police Scotland said marches are currently illegal under coronavirus measures and they arrested four men aged 37, 31, 53 and 31. Um, so this is basically, they've, they've, picked, they've picked some victims because how do you intimidate people if you say, well, the, the marches are illegal and people turn up in March? Well, what you do is you, you pick a few of them um, and, and you arrest them for no very good reason and uh, you then suggest that they're going to have huge fines and great, great legal problems. Um, and you schedule the, the, the trials for months in the future uh, and leave some of them with uh, restrictive bail conditions. So this is how you intimidate people using the police, using the legal system uh, and claiming it's lawful. Uh, if you want more on that concept, uh, I suggest people tune into our podcast series, a, Dissident, a Dissident's Guide to the Constitution. Now we've got a few a few photographs from the from the march here. Um, here we see uh, uh, Die uh, Meekin holding up uh, a poster that says freedomalliance.co.uk uh, and also says uh, freedom is for life, uh, not just for Christmas. And uh, so she escaped arrest. And here you see uh, a man being arrested and bundled into, into the back of a van. Now, the question is, why did they pick that guy? Because there were 70 people there and they were all doing essentially the same thing. Why did they pick that man? Well, it seems to be that Police Scotland are saying, well, what we do is we engage with the public and we give them advice. And we only use arrest and enforcement measures if it's absolutely essential. What that man did is he talked to the police officers. And that's the first, the first part of the process towards being arrested because you're now engaging. So that, that ticks the first box, I've engaged, and they'll give you some advice. And you'll say, no, no, this, is, this makes no sense at all. That ticks the second box, they've now given you advice. They can now arrest you. So I would say if anyone is in any conflict situation with the police, don't talk to the police at all, at all, at all, because it will simply be used to, um, to engineer your arrest. Uh, I think that's uh, very good advice, David. We have the right to remain silent and we should exercise that right as much as we possibly can. Now, let's just a uh, quick advertisement here. Last week, David, you mentioned uh, Samantha Baldwin's uh, book. Just uh, remind us who Samantha is and, and what the book's about. Uh, Samantha is an enormously brave mother of two children who have been subject to abuse uh, and who have been handed over by the family courts to the abuser. Uh, Samantha has been uh, vilified by the family courts, uh, targeted um, and had many uh, actions taken against her to suppress her freedom, but uh, she still speaks out uh, on behalf of her sons. Um, she has written a book, it's called Everything is Going to Be Okay. Um, it's uh, written in, as a novel, but it's her story in novel form. And uh, it, carry, it, it, it considers her story up to the point where 
Uh, she's sitting, sitting after the, the courts have decided what's going to happen to her son. She hasn't yet heard officially yet, but the next thing that happens is the police raid uh, the, the, the building which she's in and seize her children quite literally out of her arms. Um, having suspended all police investigation into murders in the entire county in order to engage in a manhunt for this uh, single and very caring mother. Now, it's, uh, the book's excellent. It's written in an extremely accessible, readable style. Um, it recounts her experiences and is well worth a read if people want to find out just what sort of country they live in. I would say that the, the narrative probably goes a little more than um, a third of the way through the overall story and at the end of the book she's giving um, factual information about CSA and, and, and SRA, Satanist Ritual Abuse, and she's giving uh, uh, some advice based on her experience. I suspect there are more books in Samantha Baldwin and this won't be the last uh, piece of writing we see from her. I'm very uh, happy to say that uh, the UK column is going to be able to offer this book uh, for sale through our, our website as well very shortly. So more on that later. Uh, but if anybody wants to uh, listen to the five interviews that you did with her, uh, they are on the Northern Exposure YouTube channel, also on the Northern Exposure section of the uh, UK column website. Uh, yes, uh, the interviews are uh, excellent. She, she explains her, her position, her case extremely well, very calmly and coolly, so you can understand exactly what's happened. Uh, to her and I would encourage anyone who wants to find out what sort of country we actually live in and what sort of authorities we live under uh, to watch the Samantha Baldwin interviews. Yeah, thank you very much for that, David. Well, following on from that subject matter, we just wanted to give an update on uh, Wilfred Wong. Now, on the 10th of November, we reported this, that uh, Wilfred Wong, who has been a uh, very long-standing and res widely respected uh, campaigner for child protection, but particularly against ritualistic abuse of children. Um, he was reported as having been arrested following what the, the uh, mainstream media described as a kidnap at knife point of a child. And uh, a car was stopped uh, with a number of people in it by armed police on the motorway. Interestingly, the only, the only photograph shown of the group was a Wilfred Wong and uh, as can be seen by the inset image here, the mirror in particular focused on the fact that he was clearly in chains and we felt there was something significant. Well, what happened a little bit later was tragic because one of the uh, people arrested was then found dead in their prison cell. Uh, this was reported here by North Wales Live, Anglesey child kidnap. Uh, accused found dead in prison cell inquest hears. A man charged with an alleged child kidnapping on Anglesey was found dead in his prison cell. Robert Frith of Tin Park Hollyhead was discovered suffocating in his bed at HMP Berwyn in Wrexham just after 8.30 on November the 14th. So of course the prisons charged with protection, people in prison are all very vulnerable because they have no freedoms to look after themselves. Um, so the prison here um, clearly failed in uh, at least one respect that uh, a key um, person to this case has died. And uh, this was the original report in the North Wales Chronicle. Um, so it uh, said that uh, the people arrested were Dr. Dr. Anker Hill, um, a Jane Going Hill, 
her partner, Robert Frith, the gentleman who unfortunately has died, um, husband and wife, Ed, Edward Stevenson and Janet Stevenson, uh, and also Wilfred Wong is, is listed there. Now we understand that uh, Dr. Anka Hill, who we believe is the mother of the child, and, and the other lady, Going Hill, I think they are related, indicated that they would plead guilty. Uh, we've got one defendant already dead, and we understand that the remainder of those people, including Wilfred Wong, are pleading not guilty. Uh, obviously, it's going to be difficult to see how that plays out if you already have two that have pleaded guilty, but I can imagine they would have been put under huge pressure uh, by the system. If anybody wants to know more about Wilfred Wong, if you go to the UK column and simply search for his name in our search box, uh, you'll come up with a number of interviews uh, that we did with Wilfred Wong, and uh, you can see the calibre of the man. But uh, this case has all the hallmarks of a government-controlled case in UK, and of course the British government heavily involved in the taking of children from families through secret courts, and anybody who dares try to interrupt that process uh, can expect the full force of the law, as it's called, to be unleashed on them. OK, we're just going to briefly move on to defence here because uh, Ben Wallace was giving a presentation just before the weekend um, on the future of the British Armed Forces to RUSI, which is the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, now, uh, on Friday I was talking about, uh, you know, the possibility that Britain is positioning itself to be the glue that binds together global uh, institutions, for example, uh, European trade with US trade and so on. But this also applies to defence as well. So just briefly have a, have a listen to this. We have a tendency in the West to divide conflict between war fighting, the violent activity of a proper so-called shooting war, and the sub-threshold, everything before the shooting starts. When in fact today's conflict is carried out through typically non-violent but undoubtedly hostile activities. The division might give comfort to our rule of law approach, but it drives a static war and peace disposition. This makes us deeply vulnerable to those who don't play by the same rules, especially below the threshold. So this is echoing uh, comments by the Chief of the Defence Staff, Nick Carter, and previously uh, other senior military figures in the UK that are presenting the idea, including Ben Wallace himself and other speeches, presenting the idea that we are in a situation of perpetual hybrid warfare, uh, that we are just perpetually at war. Disinformation is a big part of that. So uh, following on from that, then Ben Wallace, uh, ben Wallace had this to say. He said the widespread use of cyber, organized crime, electronic warfare, proxy fighters and disinformation can be seen on nearly every continent. Uh, only last month, he said, Russia tested the Zircon hypersonic anti-ship and land attack missile, which can travel at Mach 9, outranging and outpacing even its pre predecessors and creating new challenges for countermeasures. Uh, we must work with allies to make the most of new technologies, improve integration across all domains and throughout the spectrum of conflict. Improve integration, this is key point. Uh, the Secretary of State's Office of Net Assessment and Challenge will encompass uh, wargaming, doctrine, red teaming and external academic analysis. So we're starting to see fusion creeping in here with bringing in academic advice from outside. Uh, but uh, the establishment of new institutions within the Ministry of Defence within government, in this case called the Secretary of State's Office of Net Assessment and Challenge. Uh, and he said, in the autumn, the Chief of Defence Staff set out his plans for how we will operate through the 
integrated operating concept. And this is the glue part of it because what, uh, well, let's just briefly listen to what Nick Carter had to say here. My view is that more of the same will not be enough. We must fundamentally change our thinking if we are not to be overwhelmed. Hence, we are launching this integrated operating concept. We have to modernize. We must chart a direction of travel from an industrial age of platforms to an information age of systems. Warfare is increasingly about a competition between hiding and finding. It will be enabled at every level by a digital backbone into which all sensors, effectors and deciders will be plugged. This means that some industrial age capabilities will increasingly have to meet their sunset to create the space for capabilities needed for sunrise. So that uh, speech was given to Policy Exchange, I uh, think at the end of, uh, of October. Um, and David, the thing that, that strikes me about this is that the UK military, at least at the highest levels, is talking about sunsetting these so-called industrial platforms, replacing them with cyber, <clears throat> with counter disinformation, inverted commas, and, the, and this type of hybrid uh, approach. Um, and, but also, as we've already highlighted, uh, through the use of uh, you know, advanced communications, uh, low Earth orbit satellite constellations, as they're calling them, and so on, providing effectively the, the communications infrastructure for, for the integration, for the unification uh, and as we've pointed out before, this isn't just about European defence unification, but actually now that Pompeo and the US have admitted that they want to get involved in uh, European Defence Union as well, this is military unification full stop. Um, so Britain seems to be positioning, its, positioning itself to provide the infrastructure that holds all this stuff together. It does. I mean, this is... This is where I think things have moved. We were campaigning uh, long and hard, and I think effectively, uh, led by David Ellis, um, on the um, downgrading of the UK military in order to roll it into an EU-wide military. And I, I think that's not proven to be sustainable because the British people won't put up with it. Um, has another deal been done here? Uh, have we, uh, or have our military, or have the senior people within the military accepted a situation where independence will be lost uh, in, respond, in, in, in exchange for some sort of leading role in the world? Um, is that what's going on? Are we actually being bought off in some way? I think the answer to that is yes, is the answer. And of course, we've got this smokescreen language, obfuscatory language being used, so the public doesn't understand what's actually being done behind the scenes. Yes, let's, uh, let's move briefly on then. Um, well, David, the government has launched an independent review into the Human Rights Act. Uh, and uh, so this is an expert panel. They're going to examine the Human Rights Act, uh, how it's operating since the 20 years since it was uh, created. Um, and uh, it's going to be led by a former uh, Court of Appeal judge, Sir Peter Gross. Uh, we'll come on to him in a second. Uh, this is what they're saying about it. Uh, the uh, review will deliver the commission 
on the Constitution, on Constitution, democracy and rights, and taken together are designed to ensure uh, there is a proper balance between the rights of individuals, our vital national security and effective government. Uh, and this is really the key point. Uh, this is a point that we've been trying to make very, very hard on this program over the last number of years, is that the definition of the relationship between us as individuals and the state is being changed. We've tried to ex explain how it's being changed, what it's being changed into, uh, but it is being changed and this is why this is vitally important. Uh, here is uh, Sir Peter Gross. Uh, he is saying that uh, this will entail an independent process, so we're uh, going to be absolutely happy about that, of careful reflection to consider its workings, whether uh, uh, together with whether and if so, what reforms might be justified. Now, what's interesting, let's just look at how uh, independent Sir Peter Gross is, uh, because he's also chairman or president, can't remember which, of this organisation, uh, the Slynn Foundation. The Slynn Foundation claims to be an educational charity working with senior judges and justice institutions around the world to improve justice systems and the rule of law and to enhance professional understanding of human rights, mediation and European Union law and practice. This isn't about British law. This is about European Union law and bringing that into the UK, that style of law into the UK. Uh, so who funds this organisation? Well, the Lord Chancellor's Department the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the British Council, uh, the British Association for Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and the uh, Kurt Engelhorn European Foundation for the Advancement of Medicine. Um, so I leave it up to uh, our viewers and listeners to uh, work out how this uh, organisation and the man who chairs it uh, is effectively uh, being put in charge of uh, a review of human rights legislation in the UK. Because he's independent, Mike. It's um, obvious um, why he's being put in there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and look, uh, David's already mentioned it, but we'll just mention uh, the Distance Guide to the Constitution, and particularly episode three in this context, uh, which is all about rights. Uh, do have a look at that. Uh, you'll find it at ukcolumn.org forward slash constitution. Uh, and so, uh, David, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on this. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that we now have some sort of balance to be struck between individual rights and effective government. Effective, not just, right? Not, not the government selected by the people or the government um, uh, following laws which are, which are immutable. No, effective government. Effective. There are many things which were effective government. Not many of them were good. and. It's now official policy that our individual rights are going to be kind of eased. You know, just, just, we're, going to find a, we're going to find a middle way between your pesky rights and effective government. Yeah, we know which, what way that's going to go. Yeah, indeed we do. Well, look, uh, let's end then with, uh, with Donald Trump, David. And, uh, well, various news outlets reporting that the Supreme Court has denied uh, or rejected his uh, efforts to get... Uh, uh, some oversight into the election process? Yes, the so Channel 9 News here um, somewhat uh, crowing over the fact the Supreme Court issues 18-word rejection to Trump's election hopes. So the application for the Supreme, Supreme Court writes, the application for injunctive relief presented to Justice Alito and uh, by him referred to the court is denied. Is denied. So that's it. So this, this, the Supreme Court's not interested. 
Now, there's obviously more to talk about here. Um, uh, firstly, this is from MSNBC, and if you if you thought the BBC was was bad and biased um, on the on the matter of Trump, try watching MSNBC. It is absolutely vitriolic when it comes to Trump. So um, they're reporting here: the state of Texas motion is denied for lack of standing under Article Three of the Constitution. Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. So um, the, 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 the principle was Texas and 16 other states applied to the Supreme Court to say that these five states have had a, an election which is so fraudulent that it's likely to, to result in us getting a president that the people did not actually vote for. And the Supreme Court have said there's no standing. It is incredible. But it was, it was passed over by MSB, MSNBC with the word fail, and it was dismissed. It was quite a, it was quite a sight to see how they did this. Um, now, uh, next we've got a quote from Marco Rubio, former presidential candidate, who obviously stood against Trump. Uh, he writes, according to the left and their partners in the legacy media, uh, the Supreme Court was the appropriate place to legalize abortion and redefine marriage but it is no business taking up claims regarding a presidential election, which I think is a good point, right? Again, that was dismissed by MSNBC. But we see here people on uh, the Republican side of politics in America are, are, are raising issues, and the court is just running from them. The court's not interested. Um, uh, that's, that's got big implications for the country because if there's no legal way of resolving this, then there'll need to be another way of resolving the conflict. So the, the, the failure of the court to stand up and do its job here uh, may have deep ramifications for, for the United States of America. Uh, I've next got a, a, a tweet from Donald Trump. Um, and uh, he put this out just before the, the, the um, Supreme Court ruled. Uh, he, he writes, they get caught because, because we were leading by so much more than they ever thought possible, the late night ballot dumps went crazy. So the, 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 point, the point that Trump's making, and I think it's a valid one, is when you look at the vote count and the sudden and unexplained um, huge step, steps up in the, in the Biden count where box loads, thousands, hundreds of thousands of votes come in and they're just for Biden. And, and it just doesn't look right. It looks utterly fraudulent. So what Trump's saying is there was voting irregularities, there was voting fraud going on, but it wasn't enough to cover the victory of, of the Trump side. And therefore they had to do something that was so obvious. Um, to, to, to swing the vote in their favor. So that's the Trump position, and it's, it's got evidence to back it. Um, so the Telegraph's reporting this, and they're, they're asking, is, is this the end of the road for Trump? US Supreme Court rejects lawsuit uh, that tried to overturn the election. Again, a bit of spin there from the Telegraph. I wouldn't quite say that's how it should have been worded. President has refused to concede the election and has spouted untrue claims that the Democrats won by fraud. So the Telegraph is, is complying with the, the official narrative here. It's Trump's, Trump's just lying. It's just untrue claims. Despite all the bits of evidence that we've seen and the, the sheer unbelievability of the voting patterns that are claimed, that are claimed to be non-fraudulent, 
um, the, the, the Telegraph is just going along with this. Uh, they, they continue to report here, um, the Supreme Court on Friday brought an abrupt end to the uh, long-shot lawsuit filed by Texas and backed by President Donald Trump, um, seeking to throw out voting results in four states, dealing him a crushing setback in his quest to undo his election loss to President-elect Joe Biden. Um, now, they then go on to quote uh, the court here that Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest, etc. Now, the, te the, the Telegraph also have a couple of quotes here. Um, our one here is from um, uh, attorney, Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, a Democrat, and he said this on Twitter apparently, although it's not there now. He said, quote, our nation's highest court saw through this seditious abuse of our electoral process. So he's, he's accusing the President of the United States of sedition there. So this shows you how charged the language is getting and how uh, entrenched the positions are getting. And this, this is very significant, I think. Um, Alan West, the chairman of the Texas Republican Party, said the Supreme Court's order had established, quote, a precedent, that's, a precedent that's, that says states can violate the US Constitution and not be held accountable. And he suggested the formation of, quote, a union of states that will abide by the Constitution, end quote. That's a call, that's a call for secession. That's a call for separation of the United States into two separate countries. So that's how serious it's got. That's in the Telegraph report, but it's not the, it's not the main subject of the Telegraph report. They're just talking about, oh, Trump's a bad loser. Trump's, Trump's not recognising his loss. Um, if you look here, we've got a map of the... Um, the, the, the states that, that backed uh, the Texas uh, lawsuit. In fact, there was more than this that offered, offered a degree of support, but it, the, the, this was a snapshot. So you see here the number of states that backed Texas. So there is very substantial support for Donald Trump as being the legitimate winner of the presidency. Now, um, we'll go on here to a series of tweets by, by Donald Trump. So he's saying swing states. Uh, that have found massive voter fraud, which is all of them, cannot legally certify these votes as complete and correct without committing a severely punishable crime. Everybody knows that dead people below the age, uh, below age people, illegal immigrants, fake signatures, prisoners, and many others have voted illegally. Also, machine glitches, another word for fraud, ballot harvesting, non-resident voters, fake ballots, stuffing the ballot box, votes for pay, roughed up Republican poll watchers, and sometimes even more votes than people voting took place in Detroit, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Atlanta, Pittsburgh, and elsewhere, all in swing states. So he's talking about it being a, a, a severely punishable crime, which suggests he thinks that someone, somewhere, will be able to punish that crime. Um, and he... Uh, he goes on and he says, excuse me a minute, here we go. Um, the votes cannot be certified. This election is under protest. That's a very significant word. It's a, it's a common law word. What protest means is if you protest something, it might happen anyway, but you maintain your position to have it reversed later. And I think that's the Trump position. That's what's going to go forward here. 
he may do something more dramatic. I think um, it's going to be the telling moment for Donald Trump. Does he roll over to this? I don't see any sign that he will. I think yeah. he will see the fight is going on. Whether that goes on with immediate action while he's still president, or whether that goes on with a, a, a slower process of resistance after Biden is nominally president, I'm not sure. I suspect it's the latter, but time will tell. But uh, the, the people who seem to think, the mainstream media sources who seem to think this is just going to go away, I think are delusional. Now, if uh, Donald Trump chooses to do something more dramatic, this brings into question what degree of support he would have from America's military. Um, he was at the Army-Navy football game tossing the coin um, a few days ago, uh, and we'd like to show you the reaction he got. That support, um, that support from the military, that's from serving, serving men and women in the Army and the Navy in America, um, I think that's very significant. That reaction, which was spontaneous and natural and unforced, I think is very significant. It shows where their heart lies. Um, and in, in summary, I think we're, we're seeing a crisis for the United States of America, one that's not been reported on by the mainstream media, of course one that's being ignored uh, and, and, and scoffed and mocked, but one which is real because the situation is the election's been stolen, it is fraud, um, and there is the will in America uh, to resist it. And this means that Biden and co will come in and have his 100 days of masking and all, all sorts of support from the mainstream media, and it won't work. That's if we even get that far. Indeed. Um, Biden's not in office yet. We will have to see and watch this very carefully. Yeah, David, thank you very much. Um, I think that uh, piece on America is fully justified. As you say, things are very serious there. But we also want to say to our American audience, we, we know you're there. We know that uh, uh, you've joined in with watching the UK column and our analysis. That's very much appreciated. We're also watching these momentous events in the states um, we will do a, an extra in a few minutes so if you give us uh, 10 minutes if you're on the live stream on the uk column website then uh, we'll do a short extra indeed um, can we also encourage people people are starting to do it but this is your opportunity to be able to send in an email with questions to ask us what we think or to clarify clarify things or to challenge us and um, that's a facility now available so please use it Okay, thanks for joining us, UK Column News. We will be back at the same time on Wednesday. On Wednesday. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye bye.